And so valparate was known to be teratogenic. And you do have to ask yourself why this year, 200 women will have taken valparate uh, during their pregnancy and half of them will have babies who will be damaged. A series of medical scandals caused the then Secretary of State for Health and Social Care in the UK, Jeremy Hunt, to launch a new review, the Independent Medicines and Medical Devices Safety Review, with the explicit aim of strengthening the patient voice in order to help build a system that listens, hears and acts with speed, compassion and proportionality. That report is now out and describes a system that is anything but. It's an uncomfortable read. Now the report focuses on two medicines and one device. Primados was a hormone pregnancy test which required women to be given a large dose of ethanyl estradiol, which was then later confirmed um, to cause miscarriages in some of them or birth defects in their unborn babies. The other drug was sodium valparate, an anti-epileptic, which again was found to be teratogenic. And the device was vaginal mesh, the surgical treatment for pelvic prolapse, which we've covered before in the podcast. Now, in the process of that report, the authors talk to a lot of patients and their stories are scattered throughout it. But it's also interesting that they note the distress of many other patients who suffered the effects of other treatments out with the report's scope, but also let down by the same systems. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and in this podcast I'm talking to the Reviews Chair, Sir Cyril Chantler. Now it's a very wide-ranging conversation, so in this edited version of the interview we're focusing on the report's recommendations. And in the BMJ, we've talked, I suppose, ad nauseum in this podcast as well, about the failings of the regulatory system, how drugs are approved on these pivotal trials, which are only powered to Mm -hmm. find the positive outcomes, only done in model populations. Um, Diabetes are approved on the basis of of equivalent and and without widespread testing. Um, So when you sort of, when you started your investigation, um, how many of the problems do you think with um, primados and sodium valparate uh, and the mesh were to do with that that regulatory environment at the, at the beginning, not well, not spotting? Of course, they're all different, both in in the subject matter and the the timing. I mean, if you go back to primados, which is nineteen fifty eight there was no regulatory system in place at all. It was before the Committee of Safety of Drugs was set up. And, uh, and it was before thalidomide. Importantly, it was oh. before thalidomide. But thalidomide happened, and that's when the Committee of Safety of Drugs happened. And uh, so the question we had to face was, well, what did it go on? So we, we did a lot of research on that to find out. And of course, that was helped incidentally, as all of this was, by what the patients themselves had been doing and had done. I mean, and the media. 
And, uh, and so when we went into it, the question was, could you really criticize somebody or some system that happened 50 years ago? I mean, that's been surely very unfair. But we decided that wasn't being unfair because what had happened was in 1966, a committee had actually said, if there's any risk at all, we shouldn't be using medicines like this because they're alternatives because immuno uh, testing for hormones and therefore pregnancy was just becoming available and then a pediatrician in 1967 said well i think there is an excess of damaged babies uh, in the group that have taken this and that's still a sort of controversial point but as far as we were concerned is well if there was an alternative, if it wasn't therapeutic, it wasn't necessary, surely the precautionary principle, even in 1967, would have told you we better not go on doing this. I think what is more worrying is that when you go to sodium valproate, and I can remember sodium valproate being introduced because I, it was 1972 when I became a consultant. And so valproate, was known to be teratogenic. And you do have to ask yourself why this year, 200 women will have taken Valparate uh, during their pregnancy and half of them will have babies who will be damaged. And it's, it's easy to blame the MHRA, but, but in fact, they've been working very hard uh, uh, to improve within what they are allowed to do and what the law demands of them. But they're trying very hard to, to uh, get the information to the, these mothers. But it's not getting there. We've, they've written to GPs, their pharmacies, their pregnancy prevention plans, all sorts of things. And now the Department of Health is trying to examine the question of whether they should write directly to the mothers and tell them which is what I think perhaps is the, the, the next step. And again, you're back to where we started from, which is medicine is too complicated just to leave to the doctors. You've got to involve the patients. So, the, but of course you made another point, which is really vital. And that is the days of everything being double blinded, randomized controlled trials, which is the only form of intelligence, they're over. We've now got to follow through much more in looking at the evidence base after marketing and tracing through. Yeah, I think it's it's partly that, but as you say, it's um, I mean, you you said there that obviously the regulatory environment has has changed markedly since that's proven does went out the MHIRA has learned a lot of things, um, and our our regulation of drugs has got much better, but. Um, another element of the, the report with the device, the vaginal yes. um, mesh. And regulation there doesn't do no. nearly half the work that, um, that we have for, for drugs. And uh, I think if we turn to, to part, of your, um, part of your recommendations for this, there, there was within that um, a view that the MHRA should perhaps take on some of the roles use the learning that they've, they've had over the 
um, time period looking at drugs to 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 well, yes, devices indeed. as well. The extraordinary thing to me was that during one of our evidence gathering sessions, which was a H quip, uh, I was told by the person from the MHRA when I said, why don't you contact the patients if you have anxieties? And he said, well, in law, we're not allowed to. And I found that very difficult to believe, but he was right. So they are very much industry facing. This is how they were set up. And uh, we think that has got to change. And it does require a change in the law. And the MHRA are absolutely up for that. It's got, it's got to involve patients to a much greater extent. And the database that we can turn to in a minute, but that has got to be linked to the MHRA. And they've got to keep a register of devices and it's got to be interactive with the database that we've recommended. So you can learn early and constantly interrogate the evidence to see whether there's something that you need to be concerned about. And that is a much more sophisticated system mm. and that's, than the one that exists at the present time. Yeah, absolutely. That that use of registries um, is something that's been called for, I think, in the pages of BMJ before, particularly when um, yes. the PIP, the breast implant um, problem happened, but, but you know, uh, yes. metal on metal hips, the, the list of these goes uh, goes on and on. A couple of times in there, you've mentioned patients, and obviously they were at the heart of um, your report. And it's very telling the way the system has been built up to, as you say, be industry-focused. Um, surveillance has to happen almost uh, ad hoc, um, based on, on patients self-reporting or going to their doctors and saying, you know, I'm having an, an issue with this. Um, and even when patients did that, they didn't necessarily, they weren't believed or their, their issues were, were minimized. Um, there was no forum for people to get together very easily uh, and share experience to, to, you know, prove that there was a, uh, a problem going on there. There was not a single place that they could turn to, to, to complain about it. I mean, it just seems like the whole system was so geared towards industry. Uh, both the, the medical industry and the, uh, the drug industry, um, and away from patients, that they were just thoroughly disempowered. Well, there was nowhere for them to go, and nobody listened to them. And some of the stories we have heard have been heartbreaking and actually very disturbing. I think we even uh, people like me who've been a doctor for a very long time found uh, listening difficult. And so, yes, it, they, they've been very poorly dealt with. And, uh, and of course, very frustrated. I mean, you've, the BMJ has carried a lot of very important papers on this. I mean, the mesh is, when did mesh become a four-letter word, for example? And the leading articles and everything that followed that. I mean, the recognition that um, NICE recommended a register in 2003 but nothing happened. People wrote, Bruce Keogh and, and the department wrote round 
in 2012 saying we need to do this, nothing happened. Went round again in 2017 and nothing happened. It was only when we came along in 2018 and said, look, stop. I mean, at least stop until you've done all the things you say you should do to keep patients safe, which is when the pause came in. And uh, the interesting thing to me is how different parts of the system have reacted to that and did so at the time. Uh, it was quite interesting that some people said, well, thank you at last. And some people said, how dare you? It's, um, I think there's some interest there, but no, you're absolutely right. They've, uh, the systems have not been in place to hear what the patients have to say. And, if you, and they're the ones that the system exists for. I mean, as I said in the report, patients aren't stakeholders. They're the reason we all exist. I may be a stakeholder, you may be a stakeholder, patients aren't stakeholders. And, uh, and if the people who are most affected don't have a voice that the system can hear, then the system isn't working properly. So that's by far our most important recommendation is the patient safety commissioner, but uh, that will be the difficult one to land, I know that. And I want to come on to, to talk a little bit uh, about that um, in a moment. but. Um, I was interested to see that as part of your report, you recommended that in the UK we create um, a US style, you know, they've had their open, um, the Sunshine Act, their mm. sort of open um, database where, where all of uh, industry payments to doctors are registered. And, and even beyond that, um, a register of kind of mm. clinical mm. interest uh, uh, as well. Um, and I just wanted to 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 delve into that a little bit more and, and find out why um, why you think that's a such an important thing to do and and how it relates to to these stories. You see, I always thought that was one of the foundations of medical ethics that you should never have any influence on how you treat patients, which is anything other than. The benefit of the patient. I mean, I, 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 just as a, a small story, when I was uh, a newly qualified doctor, this is 1964, 1963, um, I bought, I was left a little bit of money, a very little bit of money by an uncle, and I bought some shares. And I told my boss, who's uh, a very senior pediatrician, that I bought these shares. He said, what, you bought them? And I said, Smith and Nephew. He said, sir, I suppose it's all right to have shares in a company that deals with healthcare. And I mean, if Philip said that, you knew it was wrong. Oh. That's how he behaved. And, uh, and I didn't know. They made plaster of Paris and I'm a pediatric house officer. So I don't use a lot of plaster of Paris, but that was his level of ethical standards. And eventually I became chairman of the Standards Committee of the General Medical Council myself. And, and we were very clear that during that time, which is around 2000, that doctors had not to have interests in, uh, which were financially beneficial to them 
in the delivery of health care. And if they had any connection, they were absolutely required to declare that to the patient. So you couldn't have a share in a nursing home or, or in a dialysis unit closer to my own area of work. Mm. Uh, so to me, it's a matter of, of ethics. There can be no conflict. But we were told, I'm afraid, and it's documented in the review, you can find it, it's, it's I think it's page 33 to 39. Uh, I'm afraid we were told too many stories of where that does actually apply. And even the fact that when the original trial was done by Umstein, that he was actually on a bonus if it turned out to be all right. Now, it's wrong. And, uh, and so, uh, as a principle, it's wrong, not judging any particular action. And so it seemed to us quite right and proper that doctors should have to declare their interest and the industry should declare like the Sunshine Act payments that they make. And so we're quite clear about it. The question is who's to do it. GMC agree that it should be done, but they're the right people to do it. Um, well, we'll see how that plays out. But personally, I think patients have a, a right to know where to go to one place to find out. And it's perfectly possible to link uh, nowadays with a hyperlink my if I was still on the register my entry on the medical register to my entry on the guys and Thomas's trust base or anything oh. else it shows where my interests are it should be possible for patients to find out the stories you're telling here are all about the ways in which the whole system is skewed in one direction away from from patients and patients' needs. And I think that was possibly the, the bit of your um, report that I, uh, I had the most questions about, which is you, you recommend um, setting up two new bodies, this patient safety commissioner um, and also a redress agency. And I just wonder, how do you, well, what are they for a start? Um, could you let people know that? But also, how do you see them working together to change that imbalance in power in the system. Can I deal with the redress agency first? It's, uh, of course. And Well, that comes in two parts. The, uh, we learned that, because um, I didn't know it before, that in some countries, Scandinavian countries and Japan, uh, when uh, they have a, a redress agency, so when a new medicine or device is brought to market, Having done all the proper tests, which we don't do, but we should be doing in the future for devices because equivalence and all that nonsense has to go. But, um, you know, I think the BMJ wrote a lead, I think Fiona wrote a lead, saying, why don't we test devices as we do medicines? Yes, indeed. So, but, but we all know that in spite of that, sometimes after something comes to market, it turns out that it has dangers we hadn't expected. Uh, and we need to fasten on to that early and sort it out and so forth. But then patients have been damaged and if they want to get redress, compensation, if you like, going to court is extraordinarily difficult. I mean, just see uh, of the cases that we looked at, Primados failed um, legal aid was drawn when the plaintiff said they didn't think lawyers, they, they had a case. Uh, same for Valproate, 
and and it, although compensation has been offered in Scotland by J and J, it's not happened in England, mm. and uh, it's not easy, and and we think that there should be a redress agency for medicines and medical devices that are found to be dangerous or flawed after they come to market to compensate people who are damaged, and it should be paid for with a levy on the pharmaceutical industry or the device industry, as well as by the NHS. So that's one of our recommendations. Another recommendation re relates to each of the three areas concerned. And for them, the redress we recommend is twofold. Firstly, the people who are suffering from the damage which they've, has, they've, they've been caused one way or the other, have medical and social needs at the moment, and they need to be met, uh, be it by regional centers uh, or uh, by extra money available for special needs, which is beyond what the state currently is able to provide. So, so that's another recommendation, but that is separate from the redress agency that we once set up. And actually there are precedents, by the way, for the latter be it with thalidomide or the infected uh, blood problems and so on and so forth. It's just a little bit like the way that the, um, the, the vaccine... Um, yes, absolutely so. ...damage payment scheme works, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, that's absolutely right. So that's one thing. Now, the other thing was about the patient voice. I mean, we, I made a particular point during the 70 hours of hearings that we had of when the agencies who came to talk to us like the MHRA or uh, private health information network or, or um, the GMC or the Department of Health or NHS England are saying well, how could this have happened because you've told us that you did all that could be expected of you and mostly they did so why did it happen? Um, don't know, they said. Can you make a suggestion of how it could be stopped? Well, you know, we, we, we did what we could do, but they don't know. And, and the reason is nobody was looking at the service from the position of the patients. And nobody had listened to them. The moment we listened to them, we could see where the problems arose. And so during the press conference, somebody asked me this question about the patient uh, safety commissioner. They said, so why should we set it up? I said, because if you don't set it up, what's happened this time is gonna happen again. If you do set it up or if it had been set up, we wouldn't be here now because somebody would have been listening to the patients and been able to connect it to all these agencies. I mean, Dorin, Nadine Doris in the house said, well, we have a National Director of Patient Safety, and we do indeed, and he's jolly good, Aidan, and, and he does a good job, but it's not his job to do this. And, uh, and he's within the system, and he's looking at all sorts of important things, never events and all those kind of things. But he doesn't have the range and the scan to hear the patients, to listen to them, to connect it all together, and then to draw attention of the system to it. I mean, when medicine was 
very straightforward. There's not a lot you could do. There wasn't a lot to learn about it. Now it's enormously complicated. And, uh, and somebody has to be listening and interrogating on the part of the patients whose focus is just on the patient. And that sort of brings me on to my last question. Now, as you've said through this, um, the recommendations are, are wide ranging and some like you know, the COI stuff we talked about has precedent in the US and the address agency has the precedent from the vaccines damage support scheme. Um, but particularly when you're thinking about things like, you know, changes to, to regulation, those would be really quite world leading. They would be ahead of, of anywhere else, mm -hmm. I think. Um, now, you're not a stranger to reports that make, uh, mm. that ask for a big difference. You chaired uh, the Chantler report, which ultimately led to, to plain packaging, despite mm. you know, concerted effort mm. from industry to, to stop that. So I was wondering, with your experience there, um, do you see a path to these, all, being, all these recommendations being adopted? Um, you know, I, I just wonder how, uh, how confident you are about, about any of this happening or, or perhaps about the timelines. Um, um, yeah, I think, I think it will happen eventually. But um, whether it will be in my lifetime is another matter entirely. Uh, I believe the register is such a straightforward thing to do. And given the GMC say they'd like to do it, but they don't particularly want to, or maybe they do want to, but need a change in law. It's, I would have thought that could be pretty straightforward. Redress agency, hmm, that's difficult because it really requires a fundamental reappraisal of uh, law and justice. Oh. And the 1948 Personal Injury Act is a problem because it allows compensation to be given without regard to the existence of the National Health Service or social services, which is why some of these awards are of up to 30 million pounds. That needs to be changed. Parliament can do that. And there's a, there is some enthusiasm within Parliament, I think, for doing that. To move from a system where you, you can only determine cause as clinical negligence to one of avoidability. People are very concerned about doing that. My hope is that, that we will be prepared to look at this again. We're not blaming anybody. You know, you know the, with the one or two uh, people we came across who didn't behave well and, and there, there was a process for them. But for the vast majority of people, they've both in the management of the health service and in NHS England, in Department of Health, clinicians, surgeons, even, they, they, they're doing their best and they've done wonderfully well over the last few months. Nobody wants to blame them. But I can understand why the government at the moment finds our report is uh, not the best thing to happen at this time. I don't, I'm not surprised. I mean, we didn't think it was the best thing to happen at this time either. But when we first started it, we never imagined this time would ever be. Uh, so, but I hope that the, in due course, they'll look again. I think we, we need a little, we need to sort out the complaint system. It, it, it is sort of confusing for patients. The ombudsman system has a role, but it's not this role, because that only happens if they've got a complaint about the, 
complaint system itself. Oh. So, so what we're proposing, there is nothing like it. And a little less of what we've got uh, should provide the space for this. So I think I'm giving you a very long answer that says, <laughs> I really hope it happens. But whether I will live to see it, I don't know. But I hope I do, because I think it's really important. That was Cyril Chantner talking about the new Independent Medicines and Medical Devices Safety Review. I'll link to that in the podcast text so you can read the full thing. I'll also link there to the interviews that we've done with the patients who had received a vaginal mesh. That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back very soon with more from Deep Breath In, our new podcast for GPs. This one's looking at the racist views of some of the people involved in some of the big things in medicine that you would be surprised about and uh, how that resonates with patient experience today. We'll also be back with another talk evidence, this time focusing on vaccines for COVID-19. So if you haven't done so, you can subscribe to both of them. That's Deep Breath In and BMJ Talk Evidence, wherever you get your podcast from. Until next time, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.